they're presented as an explanation of what's going on, while they, they don't really explain anything, right? That that was one of my, my problems. Um, they just show that the system is, is complicated, basically. I wouldn't even call it complex. And so um, I became frustrated with this. If you're really a process thinker, and I think that's really important here, you need to get let go of those those fixed structures. I mean, we, we, we can only study small aspects of development and evolution using dynamical systems theory, but we cannot capture the agency of the organism. It was so successful that we've, we've just completely forgotten all the other stuff that we've thrown out to make it work in the first place. And it's time to get back to that because a lot of the problems we have right now are in understanding our situation in the world and in understanding truly complex systems that have agents in them. And of course, uh, neurosciences are completely included in that. This is Brain Inspired. Hello, it's Paul. On the episode today, I have a chat with Johannes Jaeger, who also goes by Yogi, which is what I call him during the episode. On his website, Yogi bills himself as a freelance philosopher, a researcher, and an educator. And he's actually done a lot of empirical research in systems science uh, and evolutionary biology and a range of interdisciplinary topics as well. The reason he's on the podcast is because I recently took his online YouTube course called Beyond Networks, The Evolution of Living Systems. So the course covers a lot of ground, uh, but is roughly about how, because of the complexity of us as biological organisms functioning in a highly interactive and complex environment, we need to rethink evolutionary theory. And Yogi makes an argument that we need to add a new perspective to evolutionary theory that accommodates a role for agency as biological organisms. And the course has the title Beyond Networks because within this agential perspective, we need to somehow move beyond the dynamical and mechanistic explanations that we currently use to study things like gene regulatory systems, which are traditionally thought of as networks of interacting genes and products of those genes, and so on. So I wanted to have him on because, first of all, I really enjoyed his course, as you'll hear, uh, but also because his argument applies equally well to explaining brains, which are in the same complexity realm as organisms, obviously. And given that on this podcast, we often talk about using networks like deep learning networks to uh, explain intelligence, I think that Yogi's is an important message to consider. So I highly recommend the course. <laughs> Note the term highly recommend. Because fair warning, if you do watch the videos, your reading list will exponentially increase with all the books and papers that he, quote unquote, highly recommends throughout. We also have a guest question from Kevin Mitchell today, who was on the podcast recently on episode 111. A link to Yogi's blog and website and to the course that we discuss in the show notes at braininspired.co slash podcast slash 118. If you find the podcast valuable, consider supporting it on Patreon. We just had our first Zoom presentation and discussion group through the Discord server that I run for Patreon supporters. This one was about the landscape of cognitive science, and it was a lot of fun. So I look forward to having more of those in the future. To support the show, just click the Patreon button uh, at braininspired.co. 
All right. It was a pleasure having Yogi on, and I hope that you enjoy the discussion as much as I did. I came on to you, um, and in fact, uh, we're going to talk about your online course on YouTube called Beyond Networks, The Evolution of Living Systems. And I, <laughs> I'd like to say I came on to you through academic means, but I think YouTube figured out that I was uh, looking for biological autonomy topics because I had read uh, Alvaro Moreno and Matteo uh, Masio's book on biological autonomy. And I was either searching for it or YouTube knew that I wanted to search for it. And then that's how I came across your uh, course, which um, I just want to say is I, I really love this course. And um, I'll probably recommend it in the introduction, but I, I just want to reiterate that I recommend it to all my listeners to check this course out. But before we uh, talk about that, uh, I would love for you, so that I don't botch it, to introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your your background and, and the empirical research that you've done, uh, and then how you've sort of transitioned and your trajectory to your current thinking. Well, thank you very much. First of all, um, it's, it's really nice to hear that the lectures are sort of reaching beyond their initially um, intended target mm -hmm. audience, which uh, it was sort of accidental. And that's really nice to hear. I'm a evolutionary biologist, systems biologist. I had for years been a researcher in the lab myself and then had an empirical, was the head of an empirical lab in, in, at the Center for Genomic Regulation in Spain. And I was looking at the evolution of gene regulatory networks that are involved in, in the early development of um, especially flies, dipteran insects. But the aim was to sort of learn general principles of network evolution. And I was using dynamical systems theory for uh, my work. And uh, I guess it's, I've always been a bit of a philosopher. Hmm. So I've, I, I was reading philosophy as a high school student. I was interested in the philosophy of science while I was a student. Um, and I, I read beyond the classes that I took about the philosophy of science. But it was at that time when I was a a sort of a, a PhD student still, really, that I noticed that we had a really hard time publishing our work at the time. The field was very hostile to the sort of modeling studies. And uh, I often realized that the reviewers didn't sort of criticize the methods that we were using, but they didn't get the questions that we were asking. Mm -hmm. And so I, I took this step back and I was wondering about what kind of questions do scientists ask? And this set me on a trajectory that uh, got me uh, into becoming the director of a, a small institute for the philosophy of science, which is called the Conrad Lorenz Institute for Evolution and Cognition Science, just outside Vienna a few years back. Um, I didn't stay there for very long for various reasons, but since then I've, I've continued on this philosophical trajectory. And, and during my time at that institute, I, I could make some really fantastic connections. Scientists don't usually get in touch with philosophers mm. of science, but I had all these people that I was working with. And there's some really good people out there that know a lot about not just the science that we're doing, but also how we do it. And it's a pleasure to be working um, with several of them now in collaboration. So my work has taken a philosophical turn, but I'm still doing biology. I would call it philosophical biology. It's a type of theoretical biology that I would put um, famous people like Conrad Hal Waddington into that it has been been on the back burner for the last maybe 50 years or so. And I think it's high time to, to revive it. Can I ask, but so you said that you were studying or reading philosophy in high school and interested in it. And I did too, but 
I really didn't understand. Looking back, I really didn't understand it. I didn't have the same grasp on it that I believe I do now. Of course, that's probably not true also. But uh, do you feel that same way or did, did you get it back then? No, absolutely not. And oh. you also read the, the kind of, you know, Nietzsche. Yes, and of course. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> yeah. Zarathustra. I still like that book. But as you said, I mean, uh, the context matters a lot. And uh, I, I am definitely reading very different things right now. Uh, this was not a sort of a planned trajectory. I, I meandered through a lot of this. And, and you know, as you explore, this is uh, something I use in my my uh, work on academia as a system as well is is that we have to have space to explore and and a lot of it is serendipity. Mm-hmm. But when you give yourself the space and the time to explore, which is very important in my own trajectory. What would you say right now is the balance between your philosophical work output, let's say, and empirical? Because I know you're working on multiple philosophy uh, manuscripts. I've completely left empirical science. My, my lab shut down in, in 2015. Um, I'm still carrying on some of the specialized work in evolutionary development and evolutionary systems biology uh, through our work uh, on, on concepts of process homology, modularity, dynamical modularity, and so on and so forth. But um, I would say I've, I've moved on, it's especially in my scientific work, what, what I call philosophical biology. I'm interested in the um, the concept of agency and its role in evolution, which is probably something we'll we'll talk about today. So I've I've taken a turn, um, an irreversible turn away from <laughs> empirical science. I would say. <laughs> okay, so let's let's talk about. Um, you, yeah, you mentioned agency um, and its role in evolution, and that's kind of the uh, focal point and end point of your course beyond networks. One of the things that I found interesting that sort of lit me up was I just see this parallel between what you're talking about in in tying together genotypes and phenotypes and how to understand evolution in the complex systems that we have and how development plays a role uh, in that process and using dynamical systems to to model that. I just see this massive parallel with what's going on in modern neuroscience uh, as well. So that's why uh, I thought immediately, oh, I've got to have you on um, because I wanted to explore this. And I haven't thought deeply about making, you know, super close ties and and exploring what it means for neuroscience. But this is something that uh, I I want to pursue further. So, I don't know if you so I don't know how familiar you, you you are with the modern landscape of neuroscience or at least you know one one facet of it that we talk a lot about on the podcast but maybe maybe what you could do is just give a really broad overview of this uh of the course and and then we can go from there in two or three sentences right <laughs> in, two, in two or three sentences of course by the, by the way I should say this thing is 12 it's like 48 uh, you know, 30 to 40 minute videos. Uh, so it's, and it's super rich with historical perspectives, quotes, philosophical perspectives, and uh, the modern science of uh, evolution and genetics. So yeah, take it away. So here's the ex- executive summary of this. I, <laughs> okay. I was aware, I'm superficially aware of what's going on in neuroscience through colleagues that are engaged in, in work there. And I am, of course, aware that a lot of the arguments I'm making in my lecture apply um, as well, it's not that I've published in the field, but uh, the central point, I guess, is that I was interested in, in um, the limits of uh, limitations of, of dynamical systems modeling. 
because I, I was always claiming that I am a process thinker, that, um, you know, everything, explanations have to be more focused on, on processes and biology. And this has become really important in um, the field of, of genetics, genomics, but also in neuroscience because of this, this increasing pervasiveness of, of networks that you see everywhere and they pop up everywhere. And often they're, they're just, you know, you have some sort of, you know, hairball graph. They're called in, in systems biology with lots of uh, nodes and connections. And it's, they're put in front, um, on a slide and, and, you know, they're, they're presented as an explanation of what's going on. Well, they, they don't really explain anything, right? That, that was one of my, my problems. Um, they just show that the system is, is complicated, basically. I wouldn't even call it complex. And so, um, I became frustrated with this and, and that brought me into contact with people very early on through my master supervisor, Brian Goodwin. And then my PhD supervisor, John Reitis, was pioneering this approach of using, um, dynamical systems model with data, um, to, to, uh, describe the actual dynamics function and evolution of gene regulatory networks. And, this combination of empirical and theoretical work really appealed to me. It was really new. This was before systems biology was called systems biology. People called it functional genomics, what we were doing at the time. And I claimed, I went around and said, we're, we're really looking at this in terms of process. But I soon uh, became aware that the methods we were using is, are also still very much rooted in this network view of, of living organisms. And if you if you look at living organisms, what they do is they they change their structure constantly. So we we capture a specific structure in a in a dynamical system model, and from from that point of view, it's it's still static, right? You have the equations that describe the interactions, and those interactions are, are fixed. So uh, I became interested in in I went back to work I did during my master's thesis. Uh, where I got in, in touch with, uh, the work by Maturana and Varela, and I had read a lot of Varela. I did a master's in holistic science in the southwest of England in a little hippie oh. college called Schumacher College, and, uh, read a lot of Varela and got in touch with, uh, uh, embodied cognition and activism. And so it's, it's a funny twist. I, I, I basically took those ideas that came from, from neuroscience, cognitive neuroscience into the field of, um, of genetics. So it's, it's, it's come full circle. And through that, I, I became aware, uh, and, and through my employment in, in this philosophy of science institute, the KLI, I, I, uh, got to know, uh, Alvaro Moreno and Matteo Mascio, who are doing, um, work on agency and organizational accounts of, of organisms. And their theory is very much rooted in Varela's work, uh, and, uh, shows that, that, the essence of biological organization is in the constantly changing structure of the organism. It's, it's the self-making autopoietic aspect is, is that, um, it never stays the same. It's like the Red Queen and Alice, uh, which, which has to run to stay the same. It changes all the time. And so, uh, there is this old argument going back to, to theoretical biologist Robert Rosen that you cannot actually model this sort of organization. And it's very controversial. And I became interested uh, in these sort of questions. Because uh, if you're really a process thinker, and I think that's really important here, you need to get let go of those, those fixed structures. I mean, we, we, we can only study small aspects of development. 
and evolution using dynamical systems theory, but we cannot capture the agency of the organism. And therefore, I think that's crucial for neurobiology. If you come back to that, um, it, it's, you need a dynamic approach basically, but a dynamic approach that is radically dynamic, not, not like dynamical systems, right? Well, I mean, that, you know, as, as I was saying, the, I see the parallels between how you've used dynamical systems theory within this limited uh, um, approach to, you know, model the developmental process, et cetera. And so in neuroscience, dynamical systems theory is all the rage right now to take a whole population of neurons and uh, figure out what they are doing through their, like a trajectory through these lower dimensional spaces uh, and map that on to eventually to behavior. So that was kind of the, the parallel that I saw. I, I wonder if I should, um, um, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to interrupt our conversation because uh, since we, we've talked about dynamical systems theory. So, so I'm going to play you a question from a guest uh, before we move on. So I had, I had Kevin Mitchell yeah. on. We didn't talk too much about his book, Innate, but in the book, Innate, um, it's all about how development has had, you know, gotten the short shrift in the story of our genotypes and how that leads to our behaviors, our phenotypes and our behaviors. Anyway, so I thought he would be a good person to, to ask to uh, come on and ask you a question. So I'm going to play his question for you, and then we'll continue uh, our conversation. Hi, Yogi. Kevin Mitchell here. I'm a big fan of the holistic, non-reductive approach that you and your colleagues bring to biological questions, which feels very rooted in principles of process philosophy and system thinking that were popular for a while at various stages in the 20th century, but which were then replaced with a very mechanistic and reductionistic outlook. It feels to me like holistic, dynamic approaches are gaining traction again, probably because we now have experimental and computational tools to generate and deal with dynamical data sets. And I wonder if you feel the same way in the reception your own work is getting. Yes, thank you, Kevin. Um, yes, uh, I do feel th that way. And as I just said before, dynamic, even going beyond dynamical systems, uh, beyond uh, fixed structures, this is extremely important. And I think uh, there, is a, there is a big revolution coming at some point. It's a little frustrating to see how slowly it's catching on. Mm. Um, a lot of the empiricists have problems seeing the practical use of these things because they're, you know, these ideas are still very um, theoretical and, and a big challenge is to bring them to the bench, basically. And that's, that's, you know, even though I work theoretically now exclusively, that's, that's one of my, my big aims is to work towards getting those theories in, in, uh, the range of, of, of empirical tractability. I think that's extremely crucial. Now, uh, I think Kevin is, is a very optimistic person and I like that. And also I, I, it's nice to see that this work is seen among those people that really matter, but I wouldn't say it's, it's, it's gotten a lot of track traction in, in the mainstream of, uh, genetics or developmental genetics. Um, and, and it's a bit sad to see how theoretical work is, is, massively undervalued in those fields. I think one of the reasons is that technological progress has been so fast and, and the temptation to just produce data sets and resources has been overwhelming to a lot of people. So that we've, we've forgotten a little bit about what, what I earlier called philosophical biology. And I think it's, it's very important to get back to those conceptual questions now. And I've been trying to get people to, to, uh, sort of notice and, and, get interested in it, but it's really hard. I think it's got also has a social dimension and everybody's under a lot of pressure to, to just produce stuff 
And these sort of questions are not very conducive to, to, you know, career basically in today's academic system, I have to say. Well, thanks, Kevin, for the question. So uh, sorry to interrupt us because uh, I wanted you to continue talking about, about the, the big ideas um, from the course. Before you do that, though, I am going to interrupt us again because a, a big thing that you talk about is process-based um, philosophy, a process metaphysics, a process approach. And I love uh, process metaphysics. I still find it, I, uh, substance metaphysics, the idea of things is so ingrained and so trained into me that I, I still have a whole lot of trouble thinking of things in processes. And I'm wondering if that gets easier, if you think of everything in processes, or if you still struggle and think of things as, th think of processes as things, right? So, so yes, that's a very good question. I mean, you don't, right? I mean, so basically, there's a beautiful work by Johnson and Lakoff, for example, that, that look at the metaphors we live by is the, the book where they, they describe something that they call the containment doctrine, which uh, they can show that very early in your, your childhood, um, you, you form this, this vision of the world as, as, you know, basically, I call it the Tupperware uh, model of reality. It's basically boxes within boxes, containers within containers. And so that's very, very deeply ingrained. And what is important here is, is to say that for a lot of, questions and topics you don't need uh, process-based explanations a process-based approach because it is very hard there's you know i think quine was the first philosopher who who brought up the absurdity of it all he said you know you, you'd have to sort of change language for example right subject object sort of uh, he used the sentence uh, a, a, a cat is uh, the white cat is bristling towards the dog he says it's it's catting whitely uh, bristling dogwardly, right, right. you know, <laughs> and so that's taking it uh, ad absurdum. Also, uh, Borges has a beautiful argument about this in his short story, Klön uh, Orbis Tertius, uh, Ukbar Klön Orbis Tertius, it's called. It's a beautiful story. And so you don't have to uh, get rid of your language, your thinking, but you have to realize that sometimes this very deeply ingrained pattern of thinking is hiding um, aspects of phenomena of questions, you know, it, it, it's preventing you to ask questions that just don't occur to you if you think uh, like this. For me, in genetics, it's, it's very um, strong because you have this idea that you can explain processes, developmental processes, behavior in terms of genes, which are things. Genes are things. Sort of, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Yeah. So they're like pearls on a string, right? And so you have a huge gap between, you know, how is that thing causing any, any sort of behavior or phenotype? And that's been neglected for a long time because we are happy with saying, you know, this gene does that. What does that even mean? Right. And, and, and these are quite obvious questions that are uh, also beautifully treated in Kevin's work, I have to say, um, that have often been so obviously in our face that we didn't see them anymore sometimes. Uh, and there's a beautiful whitehead quote from philosopher, um, um, Whitehead, where he says that often it's it's exactly those things that are so obvious, obviously not right, that we don't even see them anymore. And and these are the things that you have to. Um, that's actually I, I use the word thing all the time. Uh, yeah, of course. Process. <laughs> of course. <laughs> it's terrible. Uh, so so yeah. So 
it's it's exactly those aspects of reality that nobody's questioning. If you, if you question one of those and, and really find something, then then that's how how really big deep insights uh, occur, of course, and changes in how we perceive the world. And I think that's very true. So this is one of the challenges here is to see where and when do you use process oriented thinking, process based explanations, and when. Is it okay? It's it's okay in many aspects, in many areas of, of life and science to use um, substance-based explanations. That's fine. I mean, we're in and language. Yeah. In science, we're very concerned with definitions, right? So what's the definition of a gene? And uh, so on the podcast, we talk a lot about intelligence and natural and artificial intelligence. And I, I feel like when you name something like intelligence, it reifies it. And all of a sudden, it seems like a thing. And, you know, I don't, we'll get into this later uh, about, you know, whether, what kind of thinking, process thinking, or otherwise to apply to these sorts of things. But I feel like the entire world of intelligence, natural, artificial, whatever those words, you know, whatever intelligence means, it uh, is really would benefit from a process based approach. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the one thing that got reified and has a really negative impact uh, is information. I mean, these sort of absurd claims that information is just as fundamental as substance or whatever. You know, it's it's something, it's a way of looking at, at a problem, right? If you use an information-based approach, you have a certain way of looking at a problem, but it's not like that the universe, you know, people, some people say the universe is made of information. Yeah. I mean, yeah. What does that mean? It's, <laughs> it's just completely meaningless. And... <laughs> So, so yes, I agree with you. We have to think about uh, what do these terms mean and, and what kind of work. I mean, the, the one of the really important practical aspects of doing philosophical work in science is to, to, to check concepts and, and to, to examine what is the work they do. And a lot of the concepts we're using don't do any any real work mm. at the moment. So I think it's that's that's one of the, the reasons we have to sort of rethink. That's what I tried to do in the lecture, to question a lot of those concepts that we use every day are, are actually uh, a lot of them are, are, are just metaphors you know they're not defined beyond the genetic program and so on and so forth these are metaphors that we use very carelessly without realizing that they're metaphors anymore hmm. all right well i i really derailed us but l let's get back to uh agency and the idea of you know um closure and well, I'll let you. I'll let you continue about how how you think of agency and its role in evolution. So this is actually stuff that came out of making this lecture. Um, oh, the lecture itself has been a process. I've been giving this lecture for years at the University of Vienna to about fifteen students before oh, wow. COVID actually, uh, you know, forced me to record it. And then I thought, why not put it up on YouTube? So that's what I did, and now it's been viewed by hundreds of people, which is fantastic. Thank you all who have taken the time to do that. So in the lecture, I, I sort of came to agency very late, right? Just like in my career. And now I'm sort of uh, really interested uh, in, in the role it plays in evolution. So here's the big historical movement from Darwin. Darwin's theory of evolution was a, a theory of struggle for survival of the individual, of the organism. It was an organism-based theory. Um, it had its, it had very big difficulties, right? It had no mechanism for inheritance, which mm. is what kept Darwin busy. And, and it had no, uh, mechanism for the production of, of phenotypes either. So this theory was then 
completely transformed in the 20s and the 30s through the modern synthesis and, and the rise of population genetics, which bracketed the organism. So it looked uh, below the organism at the genes, and it looked above the organism at uh, the population level, and it completely forgot about the organism. The organism just be became this sort of interface where population level and genetic level interact, but it, it, it had no importance. And of course, even Darwin knew uh, that, that the behavior of organisms, actions, choices that organisms make have, have really important consequences for evolution. But it's become a really big taboo topic, uh, not just because we, you know, the term mechanism, mechanistic explanation is often mistaken nowadays as, as meaning you have to explain something at the level of molecules, mm. the molecular gene. And I think that's that's just crazy. I mean, we're dealing in uh, the life and neurosciences with, with hierarchical, multi-level systems that need to be explained at multiple levels. So, and there is no scientific reason to focus on only one level. That's just a uh, sort of historical thing that happened, right? So, I've become interested in in these higher levels, and I was, I was thinking, what what does organization? What role does organization play in evolution? And and you need this sort of weird uh, biological organization. So let me, I probably have to talk a little bit about this. So please do. This specific um, notion of closure, organizational closure, um, is an idea that you have to basically account. It goes back to Kant. It's a very old idea. It was explicitly formulated by um, developmental psychologist Piaget. And the idea is that you account for all the, the causally important factors from within the system, basically. Everything that you need to, to, to continue is, has to be produced from within the system. Now, it's very important to make a distinction between that sort of closure and thermodynamic uh, closed system, right? So uh, systems with organizational closure have to be thermodynamically open. They have to have a constant flow of, of matter, food, and energy through the system. Otherwise, they cannot achieve this organizational closure. And what it ultimately amounts to is that you have a life cycle, right? So you have, you're at the end of the life cycle, you have produced something that looks a little bit like you. And that is one of the fundamental principles of evolution. You need a principle, um, not just a variation, but you need the right kind of variation. And you have to pay a lot of attention to that. Uh, if you want to be truly evolvable, a lot of people have pointed out that very simplistic concepts of evolution, like replicators, you know, reductionist accounts um, that were, were pioneered by really smart people like uh, John Maynard Smith and then others like Richard Dawkins, uh, that you can have a naked replicator that just makes copies of itself. It was pointed out really early on in the 70s, actually, um, by uh, Eigen and Schuster, that you get something that is called an error catastrophe. So if you have an, an, a molecule that replicates itself, you get errors, and the errors are just linearly accumulating. And at some point, if you have uh, exponential, uh, an exponential copying mechanism, you just get errors. I mean, there's no way to maintain a species that could be selected for um, like that. At the other end, you have self-organization, Stuart Kaufman's work that, that is about autocatalytic systems, for example, so self-organizing systems that maintain themselves in a certain state. But they can't vary either, right? Because as soon as they vary, they're no longer autocatalytic. So they, they no longer produce themselves by definition. And so you have no variation that you can select. 
And so this is a really tricky problem. And so I realized thinking about this, that, that you really need the sort of life cycle that organisms have. And that life cycle depends on organizational closure, this, the specific sort of the snake that bites its tail organization of living beings. This is a very superficial description of a very complicated hmm. um, theory here. Now, what you also get with closure is agency. Okay, so what you have to imagine is that if you look at it from a dynamical process-oriented point of view, your current state as an organism depends on past states of the environment. You react to your environment, but also on your past states and those of your ancestors. So partially, at least, your current state can only be accounted for through previous states that you had internally. So a lot of it depends on causes that come from within. And that's exactly what it means to act, to have agency, right? So true, a, a true concept of agency, and I'm not talking about people who want to explain it away by saying it's nothing but information processing, mm -hmm. just input-output processing. It is not like that. It is something that this, you know, you have agency when some of your actions are caused from within your own system. Um, and that can only happen if you have organizational closure. So if you have that closure, you have a certain basic uh, agency, which is, so I'm not talking about making decisions, conscious decisions and all that. A bacterium has this type of basic agency. So the, the, the bacterium can, in a way, decide to swim up the gradient by triggering certain behaviors in a very stochastic way. And it has a very limited repertoire of actions, but still it makes, we don't even have the language to talk about this. It's very dangerous to say it makes decisions. It's not thinking about right. what it's doing. But, it, but it's internally generated. And it, it has a, a selection of different behaviors that it can, you know, it can, it could do otherwise, basically, right? And it can only do that because it has, um, closure. So basically, what we've connected here is a principle of, of systems that are evolvable have to have this closed life cycle, but these systems have to have this particular type of organization, which automatically comes with agency, a certain kind of autonomy from the environment. And so basically, agency and uh, evolvability go hand in hand. So my, the claim in, in my most recent work is that you cannot even get evolvable systems that are not natural agents. And so then it becomes really important uh, to ask, what does that degree of freedom um, entail for evolutionary theory? I mean, it has really big consequences. Think about niche building like humans altering the environment instead of altering themselves so we adapt through changing our environment uh completely more or less nowadays this may not work mm -hmm. out very well in the end but um so all these sort of additional um dimensions are completely excluded if, if you look at uh just the genetic level and and, and that's something that a lot of uh, critics of, of reductionist evolutionary theory are saying, but here we have a specific perspective that I call an agential perspective. So it's not just a process perspective, but it's a, a specific type of process perspective on evolution, which allows us to ask different questions, to make these questions also uh, legitimate to ask, because there's a big taboo about asking, you know, what does, what the organism wants what kind of role does that play in evolution? You know, you're immediately dismissed as some sort of mystical uh, teleologist. But that, that's not the point. That's exactly not the point, right? It's, it's, it's taking the phenomena series and trying to come up with a scientific explanation. But this explanation may not be mechanistic. 
for reasons that I explain in the, in the lecture series again, because um, these sort of behaviors are not necessarily uh, explainable in mechanistic terms. So it's not unscientific, I repeat that. It's not mysterious or anything, but it's not a, a, what we consider a traditional uh, mechanistic um, explanation, which is just taking the system from, from state A through some causal chain to state B, okay? Because it has this sort of snake bites its own tail causal structure, which is very convoluted. Uh, it, it's not obvious how to deal with it in mechanistic terms, basically. But in your in your lecture series, you um you you talk a lot about complex systems and how difficult they are, they are to understand, and that's why a multi-perspectival approach is beneficial. Um, one of the things you talk about is near decomposability from uh, Herbert Simon, right? Yeah. And uh, what I'm and where everything is connected and everything is affecting each other, but some things are way more important and some things are less important. And I'm wondering if if you had to speculate this agential perspective in evolution how uh important would it you know will it end up being to the the process of evolution or as you know among the multiple explanations of evolution will this uh will the agential perspective be just a tiny thing will it be the main become the main driver uh, of uh explanations for evolution i have no idea so the, the, the thing is, we haven't asked, we haven't looked, right? This is my right. problem. I'm not, so here, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying, look, this is agency is, is, is crucial for evolution. I'm, I'm just saying I can make an argument that systems that are evolvable have agency. You know, that's, that coincides. So, so if you have a, a, an agent, it's evolvable. If, if it's evolvable, it's an agent. Um, so it's worth looking at that. And, and this has not been looked at. These questions have not been asked. So we don't know the answer. It may well turn out that it's completely unimportant. But I'm saying you can't just say that. A lot of reductionist um, geneticists just say, I know it's not important. You know, mm. uh, macroevolution is just an extrapolation of, of population level, allele frequency shifts. And, and that's just made up. There is no argument, scientific <laughs> argument behind that. That's just a simple extrapolation linear extrapolation and nobody ever has done any serious work on this so that's what i'm saying it would be worth exploring you know in the end it, it may as well you know near decomposability is nicely illustrated by astrology right i mean astrologists have a point when they say the planets do influence your relationship i'm <laughs> sure but i mean you know um, the people who you have the relationship with they're probably much more important <laughs> for your relationship <laughs> than the what's your sign yogi uh, oh, what is it? Pisces. Yes, yes. I knew it. I could tell. I could tell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. So, you know, everything is connected to everything, but a lot of this stuff is really, these interactions are really not important for, for, you know, whatever question you have. This is the basic principle of perspectival realism is that you're, you're going at reality with a certain angle and you have a certain question. And in that context, some perspectives are better than others. So perspectivism is not relativism, like, you know, some postmodern thinkers say everything is just a discourse, all kinds of knowledge are the same. It, perspectivism is not that. It says that for certain contexts, certain perspectives are better than others. They yield more sound or robust, trustworthy knowledge, but you cannot extrapolate that across all circumstances ever. You know, and that's basically my favorite definition of a complex system is a system that will, will show ever new properties in new contexts, right? So you basically can never list all the possible properties 
of a, of a complex system in advance. That's an argument that Stuart Kaufman is strongly making. And so you get true radical emergence in evolution, true innovation, and, and it's fundamentally unpredictable, which I think is a great thing. It's, I would really not like to live in a clockwork sort of Lapla uh, Laplacian demon universe where everything is determined. And so this is a beautiful view of the a process oriented, open ended view of the world that is again going back to, to Albert North Whitehead and what he called a theory of organism, which was a view of the a metaphysical system that viewed uh, the world, the universe as more like an evolving process, an evolving organism than, than a, a mechanism. And I think that's it's there's nothing dodgy or mysterious or, or unscientific about that we can have a science that's compatible with that and it would be much better to study evolution using that sort of science than the traditional mechanistic approach you you argue also that um, this age agential uh, perspective is in line with this open-endedness what you're calling radical uh, emergence uh, through its interactions uh, with the environment because it changes the environment and that environment changes the agent and that and there's this, this interaction where the adjacent possible that Stuart Kaufman uh, uh, preaches about uh, is this dynamic, ongoing, open-ended process. That's right. Preaching is right. <laughs> yes. But he's, he's yeah. got the point, right? I mean, so yeah, um, I really like the argument that philosopher uh, Bill Wimsatt is making. Uh, he has a book that's called Re-Engineering Philosophy for Limited Beings. And in the first chapter, he's sort of taking... Uh, it's called uh, the myth of Laplacian omniscience. And basically, he says, a lot of the theory of knowledge and science through the ages has been made for un an unlimited being. The Laplacian demon who knows everything about the universe and its future and its past is God. It's not a being that's in a limited being that's in the universe. And any limited intelligence needs a different kind of approach to, to epistemology, to the theory of knowledge. And, and he builds that perspectival approach out of this argument. And I think this is, is very powerful. And it, you end up, a bit ironically, you end up with a much more realistic uh, theory of knowledge than if you, if you base it on sort of, sort of dreams of a final theory. This is a very Laplacian sort of thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> there are so many different ways we can go here. I'm just I'm itching to bring up the, this, the AI uh, work that you're working with, on with Stuart, but I want to ask, because you talked about how uh, a bacterium is an agent and how we are agents, but to be an agent, you don't need any consciousness. You don't need any awareness. Where do you see a role for brains and or minds if you do see a role in this, you know, agential open-ended evolution perspective? Mm -hmm. So I see the, the, the zone between agency, basic agency and, and cognition, cognitive agency, uh, as a sort of a, a gradient. Um, I think nervous systems evolved on this sort of foundation of basic agency. One reason for it is, is to enrich uh, the repertoire of actions that you can select from. Of course, you have, mm -hmm. as, if, if you're mobile and you have a nervous system, you have a lot more choices than if you're a bacterium or a plant. And that created its own sort of dynamic of evolution in, in, in that sense. So I think, and this is why it's so uh, important to build a, a vocabulary for, for agency without consciousness, because the problem is if we muddle the two, 
then we get to, to panpsychism and stuff like that. Let's just say that I'm not sympathetic to panpsychism. <laughs> okay, um, very good. Leave it at that. Yep. <laughs> that's all I have to say about that. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's uh, precisely an example of where we mistake, uh, we, we're used to think about phenomena that come out of agency in the context of consciousness because that's how we work, right? And so it's really hard to abstract this away to, to uh, organisms that, that don't have consciousness so, or cognition. So that there's a field called bacterial cognition, and I think it's, it's, it's bizarre. Misnomer, perhaps? I, I, I don't think it's, yeah. I, I think it's, uh, if anything, then, then it's not helpful, you know? It's, it, it's really not helping because it models uh, discussions that we have to have about uh, consciousness, about free will. These are really hard. I, I don't know what consciousness is. I don't have a particular opinion about that. It's a, it's a thing, of course. Of course, it's a thing. <laughs> I would like to to understand basic agency before we move on to to, to, to consciousness. And uh, there, I'm very careful. You know, just that's a personal choice because I think the 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 questions that we ask about consciousness are not really well posed. And I think we are now at a at a at a sort of stage in history, a, a time in history where we can start to ask well-posed questions about agency, but we lack the vocabulary. All the vocabulary we have about you know making decisions, selecting behaviors, all of that is based on what we do as conscious beings, of course, and it muddles the waters. It it makes it sound more um, hokey pokey than it it is, and and often you confuse people because you seem to be making the claim that that everything has consciousness, which definitely don't agree with. Let's talk about AI then, because uh, so you and Stuart Kaufman are co-writing this manuscript uh, where you sound the alarms about how artificial intelligence is going to uh, take over the world and kill us all. Do I, is that right? Do I have that right? More or less. So uh, we're discussing <laughs> at the moment. And also, I want to mention uh, Andrea Roli, an AI researcher from Italy who's involved in our conversations. Oh, okay. It's a three-way conversation. And we, we, we'd like to and to have this discussion in a, in a publication, of course. So uh, here's the thing about uh, organizational closure. This weird organization, um, it gives you agency. So basically, you could formulate it in different terms. You can say it, it allows you to want things. Uh, again, we don't have the right word. So a bacterium doesn't want things in a conscious way, like we want things. But right, right. it's still goes for the food, you know what I mean? So it's it's sort of uh, a truly goal-oriented behavior. And the argument is basically simply to say that you cannot make an algorithm want things. In AI, this translates to the, the question about um, uh, cost function choice to begin with, or even to, to choose or not whether you, you want to optimize the cost function or not. So the, the argument is that in, in AI, first of all, all agents as an AI uh, researcher would, would call them, are simply algorithms, input-output processing procedures. And the argument of organization, the organizational account of organisms is that organisms are exactly not like that. They are more than that. So because they can cause actions from within the system, they have a degree of freedom. Um, oh, somebody, I forgot the name of the authors of the paper, called it a, a freedom from immediacy. They don't have to... Organisms don't have to um, respond to the environment from a certain... Golden Shadlin, I believe. Oh, yes, yes, that's right. You're right. So 
uh, freedom from immediacy, you don't have to. It's, it's basically an argument about, you know, you could have done otherwise. Some sort of, again, it's not the argument about free will. Free will is something more uh, evolved and, and involves consciousness. It's, it's, could, could the bacterium have behaved in a different way, basically? And the answer, if you, if you believe in, in what I would call a strong concept of agency is yes. There are, uh, there's a freedom there, degree of freedom. And so I, I think that's very important. Now, the, the argument that we're trying to make is that this degree of freedom is not algorithmic because it, it is not formalizable 100%. And there are several arguments that have been made in the past uh, about this. Uh, one of them by Robert Rosen, the first one, who is often misunderstood uh, as saying that you cannot model an organism. And it's been conclusively shown that you can make a simulation of an organism that behaves like an organism. You have to use uh, recursive sort of functional programming paradigms to do this. And it's a bit complicated. You can't just do traditional dynamical systems theory, but you can do it. But Rosen's argument wasn't about that. He said it's not formalizable completely. So it's an incompleteness argument an analogous to Gödel's incompleteness theorem in math. Now, Gödel showing that number theory is incomplete doesn't mean you can't use number theory, right? It mm -hmm. just means that it doesn't capture all possible statements about numbers. And this is the same argument. So basically, you can make a model of the organism, but the organism can always surprise you because it can have, it has this degree of freedom to act in a way that it's never done before because its action right now, its state right now depends on its entire history, evolutionary history in the end. And so its behavior is, is fundamentally unpredictable unless you know the, this entire history, which is impossible. So that's one argument. The other argument uh, that Stuart Kaufman presents is, is, is complementary to that. And he says you cannot simply cannot predict all the possible functions of a, of a complex system. Mm -hmm. um, so he takes a screwdriver as an example. He says, you, you know, it's been designed to, to tighten bolts, but you can also use it for all kinds of other um, purposes. You can pry a door open with it. You can pick your nose, I think he's saying as well. It's a bit dangerous. Spear fish. But, you know. <laughs> yeah, whatever. And exactly. And so the, the, because the context of its use is always different and ever evolving into the future, it's never the same. You, this is a, a, a radically context dependent property function, the function of the, the, the screwdriver. And so as soon as a thing, <laughs> a thing, you see, uh, an organism, a process has a function, um, you, you cannot predict all the possible functions anymore. And so that brings you this, this sort of adjacent possible view of, of, you know, radical innovation, radical emergence <clears throat> that, that you simply cannot predict a specific context before it actually happens. There's another beautiful book that I recommend, uh, by, uh, process philosopher Nicholas Rescher, which is called Unknowability, where he makes the same argument in, in the context of, uh, discovery of, of science, where he says, if you could predict a specific discovery in the future, then you would have already made it. So there's a logical paradox there. So specific discoveries in the future are, are, are facts that are fundamentally unknowable. You just can't know them because if you do, then you've already made it. And then this is not a future discovery anymore. So I, I really like this sort of view. So we're tying together these, these arguments to say, okay, so we cannot have, um, this sort of open endedness, this, this sort of surprise element in the behavior and the evolution of organisms in an algorithmic system. And since all our AI agents are algorithmic, um, they cannot actually do that. So the argument is basically 
maybe you can call it a, a strong and a weak sense of agency. The weak sense of agency is, is a, simply algorithmic information processing. And you can make an argument that, that the, what makes biological agents true agents goes beyond that. And therefore, you cannot have this sort of artificial general intelligence, think Skynet, that suddenly wants to exterminate humanity. It's not going to do that. Why would it want to exterminate humanity? And how do you program it? It will always be limited in some way by the, the way in which you've set up the, the AI system in the first place. While living systems are not, um, <clears throat> they are also constrained, but they can break through those constraints eventually uh, through evolution, while an AI simply can't do that because it's algorithmic. What if you create um, like someone like Ken Stanley um, and, and you know, lots of people working on evolvable systems? So the, these systems are always evolvable in a, in a limited way. I mean, the, this has also, I mean, the failure of artificial life, you know, that the sort of, these, mm -hmm. these, why, why do these evolutionary simulations always get stuck? It's my strong suspicion that it is because these agents Again, that's a bit of a misnomer. I always scare quote the term in this context right, right. are not true agents. And so I, I heavily suspect, of course, I'm biased here, that it would be interesting to look at the role of agency in evolution because I don't think you can get this sort of open-ended evolution without agents. And this is what I talk about when I use the term evolvability here. It's a very specific sense, a very strong sense of the term evolvability. So true innovations that are not just you know, Andreas Wagner is making the argument that, that evolution is just sampling from a huge platonic space of ideal forms, which is bizarre. And I, I think Kaufman's argument is, is, is directly opposite, uh, this sort of view. And, and I like it much better because it's process oriented and we don't have this pre-existing space of possibilities. We cannot formulate it. Is there room for good enough AGI or good enough AI that we would be satisfied. I, I don't really even know what the goal of AGI is. So it, you ask different people and they have different answers. But, um, you know, will we be satisfied that we've created something good enough using something like, you know, a reinforcement learning algorithms, right? Where you, you are, you know, you're still externally giving the objective function um, as it's, as it's, as the agents, scare quotes, motivation, right? Um, you know, it, a lot of, you know, a lot of people are talking about reinforcement learning being enough to get to AGI. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, the question is, what do you want? As you say, it's not clear to me. I mean, you can, you know, what is it? Eliza passed the Turing test for a few minutes, you know, with lots of people. Yeah. So that's, right. you know, so um, I think it, it depends on how you set the bar. And also if you want, I mean, often we're, we're happy with imitations. So AI can produce a lot of imitations of creativity and true life. And we are very convinced by that because it's very good uh, at doing that. And so the question again is, is what, why would we want to do this? It's just, I think for me, this discussion is important because if you read uh, around in rationalist circles and all that, a lot of them, uh, there's a beautiful book called The Precipice, um, which is listing all the, the, the different uh, existential risks to humanity right now. And, and always near the top of the list is this, um, generally AI sort of replacing us. And, and what will kill us is, is Facebook, you know? Watch the uh, social dilemma. Don't fret about Skynet. It already is. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. 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 So that's much more immediate and much more dangerous. And Skynet, don't worry about Skynet. Skynet's not going to happen anytime soon. You may actually have to evolve 
synthetic life to get that, you know, a sort of a, a, an AI implemented in a synthetic life form to get that, you know, but now we're talking about science fiction. Well, right. Well, right. But that's, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, you know, so is life a necessary um, precursor to intelligence or do we need to uh, reconceptualize what we mean by the thing we call intelligence do we i don't even know what the hell we're talking about to be honest exactly yeah uh, it's very i mean there are uh, arguments back and forth whether you could implement the so the principles of organization of a living organism are not necessarily dependent on the material substrate but of course the material substrate needs to have certain um uh, characteristics and the argument has been made by alvaro moreno um and arancha echeverria among other uh, people that that you need uh, an organic substrate to get that. You can't implement that mechanically. It's just not feasible. But I, I wouldn't uh, venture too much out on that limb. You know, maybe we we develop some kind of you know gray goo technology soon that that can do it. I don't know. Um, what we're yeah. arguing with with Stuart and Andrea here is that um, you need a completely different architecture. Of your AI, and at the moment, uh, with our current technologies, I would say the only thing uh, that can do it is a living, a living uh, cell, a living organism. What do you think? Um, if you had to, again, speculate, you know, how far into the future do we need to go until we can artificially create it with materials and new architectures? So that depends on on uh, what you could call strong synthetic biology, right? I mean, at, at the moment, what we're doing is we're doing we're playing some electrical engineering equivalent in organisms and then we try to predict what the circuits that we build into the organisms do and then mostly we're wrong so the the true uh, aim of such a synthetic biology would of course be to to uh, synthesize um, a, a living organization from scratch because you know these sort of publicity stunts that Venter, for example, did about saying, "Oh, you know, we've we've synthesized the genome and then put it in a cell and it lived." They cheated in two ways. First of all, the the genome was based on existing genes from an evolved organism, and and of course, the cell they transplanted into was a living uh, thing. You know, I'm saying <laughs> thing again. I shouldn't, but a living organism. So so that's not creating life at all. So it would be to to synthetically produce a. Uh, organization with closure that that shows all kinds of signs of life and has agency in this strong sense that I was trying to convey uh, in my lecture and in, in my recent work. So uh, I think that is something the current AI certainly cannot. I mean, if we talk about what we're doing right now, this is impossible to do. But I, I don't want to speculate. Whenever you say it's impossible to, to do something technologically, someone comes along and does it. So uh, whether we'll have in the near future such artificial organizations, lifelike organizations, is, is a very open question. It's a nice challenge for engineers and synthetic biologists out there. It is a bit Frankensteinian, so it would have to be regulated quite a bit, in my opinion. And we'd have to uh, proceed with extreme caution also not to release this kind of stuff into the environment. Hmm. I know you're not a neuroscientist or a an AI practitioner. But a lot of the people I have on the podcast use deep learning networks, which is a large part of current AI, to study what's going on in brains and um, you know make a story about how uh, the the network and its dynamics are similar to brain dynamics. Um, 
Do you have thoughts on that kind of approach, or do you see it as fundamentally limited in the same way? So I see, I see it as fundamentally limited. It's a basically it's a huge step forward to just sort of looking for certain circuits in the brain and say they this circuit does this, or this circuit right. does that, because <laughs> the circuit doesn't do anything. You can run different processes on the same circuit and so on and so forth. But so in that sense, it's a huge step forward. And on the other hand, it's again, it's just a very fixed. Uh, you know, traditional sort of dynamical systems approach that, that will not give you true, uh, autonomy of, of cogn- uh, cognitive processes because it's just algorithmic. It's limited in that way. It'll, it'll allow you to, to simulate probably a lot of the aspects of cognitive processes. So I have to say, uh, and this is very important that, um, a large part of an organism, a large part of, uh, our brain works in mechanistic ways. So we can get a long way by studying, um, these systems with dynamical systems approaches. So I think we can definitely make pragmatic progress, uh, even great progress with these sort of approaches, but they will not in the end give us a complete, ever give us a complete picture or a, a very deep understanding of how brains work mm-hmm. because they're, they're intrinsically limited, uh, to me- mechanism, to algorithm. Uh, and, and for me, I mean, if we can show that even a simple bacterium has agency that is not algorithmic, then we don't have to discuss whether the brain is a Turing machine anymore. You know, some of the processes that run in the brain may be uh, uh, like computation in, in Turing sense, but but the the whole brain, the whole organism is, is why should it be captured by by this limited technological metaphor that we're using here? Right? I mean, it makes no sense. We have to prove that first. I think the burden of proof is simply on the people that claim that to be true, and they often say it's evident, but it's not. I don't think it is at all. I've never seen a convincing argument for it. I mean, there are people like Mark Bickard who kind of rail against computationalism, right? The, the mm-hmm. computational approach to understanding. But you, you have to admit that it has been one hell of a successful perspective on advancing our, our understanding of, of at least certain aspects, those aspects that you're talking about yeah. that you can understand in mechanistic terms. I have colleagues in evolutionary biology who go against molecular biology and, and uh, molecular reductionist approaches saying, uh, we're against that. That's absurd. Okay. <laughs> so this is a very successful, um, science and it's, it's brought us a lot of really interesting and important, uh, insights. And, uh, the, the trick is to realize its limitations, just like computationalism and cognitive science, right? It's a very useful approach, but just like any perspective, if you're a perspectivist, you realize that this is just one perspective you can take and it's useful in certain contexts and it's not useful in others. And that what's happening in both neuroscience and the life sciences is that um, this sort of genetic uh, paradigms, you know, these metaphors like the genetic program, all of that. And then program metaphors also in, in, in the neurosciences have been taken massively out of context and used to explain uh, a way, you know, phenomena beyond their boundaries. So basically we've, we've inverted the argument. If it doesn't fit our paradigm, um, then it, it, it's not real. And this you mm-hmm. see in, in the literature about agency, uh, all over the place. So, so, um, this sort of, uh, trying to explain it away rather than to explain it, because then we can save mechanistic approach instead of saving the phenomena and taking them serious. And I think that's just upside down. If you're a true empiricist, you're taking those phenomena serious and you're not just dismissing them. Um, because they don't fit in your preconceived, uh, paradigm of how you should do science, right? So one of the things that um, Moreno and Malcio talk about um, in their book on biological autonomy, so so thinking about your 
uh, perspective on the agent as uh, an autonomous organization um, with uh, organizational closure, closure of constraints. Um, they talk about this also in their book, but they also sketch out an argument and admit that it's an incomplete argument uh, that they believe that the that our brains and minds have this same kind of organizational closure, autonomous from our the rest of our organism, right? So you know mm-hmm. there are different China dolls of, or Russian dolls of autonomy or something, right? Um, do do you buy this perspective, or do you think that we need? I mean, I know that there are multiple pr- valid perspectives, but do, do you buy the organizational closure of minds? I'm not sure. I think it's it's it's, it's definitely not clearly distinct. It's 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 a it's a different uh, type of organization. You can they have a really nice argument. I have to say in their book about what is really basic closure. So metabolic closure, basically just keeping yourself alive, you know, and then regulatory a layer on top of that, which allows you to yeah. adapt. So they call this adaptive agency and, and, and say it's, it's a, it's just one level above basic agency. Basic agency is just sort of having a metabolism that maintains itself and maintains if you buy into the autopoiesis perspective, also the boundaries of the organism. And then you have through those boundaries interactions with the environment and you get uh, through regulation, you get an adaptive type of agency where the organism is able to react to influences from the environment. And you can make a really convincing argument that in some ways, these are um, different layers of complexity in in, uh, a living system. So you could make a similar by extrapolation, as far as I understand, they make the argument that um, through evolution, uh, nervous systems have um, autonomized themselves in this way. And uh, I do buy that general argument uh, as plausible. Um, of course, it's just, a, uh, it's, it's just a scenario at this point. It's hard to yeah. actually prove that. But it's, it's a plausible scenario. But um, I wouldn't call it uh, completely. So the danger is always to near decomposability means that we can distinguish different aspects of an organism without having to separate them, right? And so this is uh, it's very important and is over- often overlooked uh, because you don't have to be able to separate processes to be able to distinguish them and treat them in different ways. And again, perspectivism helps you understand that. It's a very powerful way of understanding why that is. One of the things that you repeatedly bring up in your course and I have to admit, I have not read Reengineering Philosophy for Limited Beings yet, but um, I have used uh, the the same images inspired by you know just I just basically copied you um, um, from Bill Wimsatt, uh, and I'm specifically thinking about the one where the causal structure at our level of organization in this world in the biopsychological thicket. Um, mm-hmm. You repeatedly, you know, point to this and say, you know, you wouldn't expect to to be able to have a purely rec- reductionist. Uh, explanation and we need this is why perspective perspectives are good because each perspective is a cut through this uh, causal biopsychological um, thicket uh, and that's a long-winded introduction to my question which is do you see uh, so, so what I've kind of been thinking about is like how are the brain sciences brain and mind sciences in the same predicament as the biological uh, life evolution and genetic um, uh, sciences or are, are there important differences? Because I, I just see the, so many parallels between what's happening and what you describe that's happening in in your world. That predicament is definitely the same. It gets increasingly worse. I mean, Wimsat makes some really nice arguments uh, saying that um, 
well, if you have these perspectives, they have to cut the phenomena in, in, you know, the thicket in, in ways that make sense. And, and as you get to ever more complex layers in the social sciences, especially, but also in cognitive science, you get to uh, bigger and bigger challenges there. Because as I said, in our discussion about consciousness, we have a really big problem, and that is nobody knows what, what we're talking about, really. Uh-oh, you're going to get in trouble. <laughs> I know, I just said that on, on yeah. air. Um, yeah, uh, let the hate mail come. But I think that's a, uh, that's a problem. I mean, you can make some really, there are some really, don't get me wrong, there's some really interesting arguments there. But I, I think it's really hard to cut that thicket in the right way. And I'm saying, as we slowly cut our way through, um, Agency only has become amenable to, to these kind of questions very recently. And it's even possible now to maybe have an empirical sort of study of, of, of how this organization of, of natural agents um, works. But this is also very dependent on the technology we have, the, the kind of other knowledge we have, very complex dependent itself. It's, a, it's an evolution of, of, of knowledge. And uh, so I think we can, we can cut our way. Uh, through the thicket, but one of the basic insights from uh, arguments about incompleteness in this area is that you will never have, mm. you know, how was it uh, Kant said, you will never have a Newton uh, of a blade of grass. You will never have a general theory like in, in physics. And of course, Kant was a big cop-out. He just said, oh, you know, you should treat organisms as if there were mechanisms, but but even if they're not, he called this teleomechanism. And we still have that, for example, in the writing of Dan Dennett, he has something called the intentional stance, right? He says, oh, organisms mm -hmm. are mechanisms, but it makes sense to treat them as if they were not because they behave as if they were not. And then I'm wondering, what, what are we doing here, right? I mean, I mean, why don't we take this phenomenon of, of agency serious? And maybe we learn something instead of just trying to explain it away that way mm -hmm. and saying, oh, we're just pretending here that something has agency because it makes it easier for us to think about it which is a, a inconsequent, it's not consistent as for me, it doesn't work. It's, it's sort of, it's, it's a bit half-assed really, uh, to be quite frank. Right. <laughs> so, um, uh, I think, um, so what I really like about Wimsat is really hard to read, but what I really like about Wimsat is that he takes this idea of, of having to have different level explanations really serious and, and, um, uh, makes a very convincing argument for that. So he has a chapter where he describes the uses of, of reductionism. And again, he has this very sophisticated stance where he says reductionism is good for a lot of things. And I just don't want to come across here as saying, okay, we shouldn't do this. I'm just saying mm -hmm. we have to recognize its limitations. And what we're doing right now is, is not that. We're, we're going way beyond its limitations. And it, it causes all kinds of problems, for example, our, our arrogant attitude towards nature. Uh, as, as controllable and predictable, um, is, is one, is one very big societal consequence of that sort of, uh, failure to recognize our limitations in this sense. So this, the, me the mechanistic approach is very limited and it doesn't apply to most things that truly interest us. If you think about it, agential systems are involved in all kinds of real, uh, you know, the things that really truly interest us and that are important to our survival ecosystems, the economy social networks that are dis disintegrating, um, and so on and so forth. So I think a science of agential system is just absolutely fundamental and we do not have it yet. I mean, complexity science as it is right now is just dynamical systems because it has yeah. this non-notion of agency. Um, it's just computation and that's just not working for us. Even dynamical systems um, is hard 
to intuit, right? So one of the appeals of the mechanistic approach is because it's intuitively appealing, thinking about the entities and their their parts and activities to explain the phenomenon at hand. And when you start talking about uh, bifurcations and dynamical landscapes and trajectories, all of a sudden it gets slippery. And then, so I don't know, is the agential perspective going to be even worse? <laughs> yes, it's going to be okay. a, lot worse, right. a lot worse than that. Well, actually, yeah, <laughs> well, you, you end your uh, course sort of, it's, it's aspirational and you, you say, oh, I'm going to have to go learn a lot more math now, you know, because it's, uh, it, because it's, it's a real project. I think one of the interesting things is to explore the, the limitations explicitly. So to push things till they break. And, uh, this has, for example, not been done enough, uh, in terms of, for you know, taking recursive uh, functional programming, um, um, to its limits. These are uh, programming approaches that allow you to operate not only on, uh, you know, the state of a system or the, the parameters, but on the, on the very, um, uh, the structure of the system, the operators and the system itself. So you have a, basically a program that rewrites itself. And that's already a pretty good um, approximation to what an organism is. But again, it remains um, algorithmic. So at some point it'll break and, and we'll, we'll, we'll get stuff that happens that is not captured by this formalism. The question is where does that happen? And again, does it happen often enough for it to be relevant, uh, important for our understanding of evolution? Other systems that uh, involve agents, you know, um, cultural evolution, the economy. Um, I think it, I, my intuition would be that this, of course, plays a huge role in social systems hmm. and probably a somewhat lesser role in, in, in evolution. But I still think it plays, it probably plays a, a, a really important role. And as you say, I mean, it's comfortable to, we are used as modern people, enlightened people that go into science, uh, we think of anything that is not mechanistic is not scientific. I mean, I want to come back <laughs> to that point. And that's just not right. You know, I mean, there, there is no reason. Um, my friend, uh, philosopher Dennis Walsh, he's, he's making a really convincing argument that certain types of teleological explanations are completely scientific and are okay, but only certain types. For example, the teleological explanation that an organism acts in a certain way because it wants something. Mm -hmm. He has a very strong argument that this doesn't you know, violate any of the sort of claims against teleological explanation that you have causation from the future, et cetera, et cetera. That's not a problem. But of course, um, other people trying to convince uh, us that evolution has a, an ultimate goal or something like that is completely illegitimate. So the, the, the line cannot simply be drawn at mechanism and then say anything that's not a mechanistic explanation is not scientific. That's taking a very narrow um, uh, stance on, on what a, a scientific explanation is. And that's a pretty recent thing, you know, uh, going back, uh, at the most of the scientific revolution, because Aristotelian views of the world were much richer in terms of what kind of, uh, question, answers to the question why you can, you can provide and, and have to provide to understand something. And, and we, I think we've lost something there, you know, and, and if we don't get past that limitation and recognize it in the first place, that's, that's the thing. I mean, we don't, we, we, we are so embedded in it that we don't see its limitations anymore. It's like, you know, the, does the fish have knowledge of the water around it? You know, it's like, it's, it's like the water we're swimming in and, and, and we've completely, um, forgotten about, um, that we've actually constructed this approach to the world pretty recently. And it was so successful that we've, we've just completely forgotten all the other stuff that we've thrown out. 
um, um, to make it work in the first place. And it's time to get back to that because a lot of the problems we have right now are, are in understanding our situation um, in the world and in understanding com truly complex systems that have agents in them is uh, has to do with these philosophical questions that we've been discussing. And of course, uh, neurosciences are completely included in that. Uh, th this cry for theory that there, we have so much data we don't know what to do with it and we need theory this is prevalent in the neurosciences in the sciences yeah. of the mind but watching your course and is it just a mirage uh, due to your scholarship that you bring in so much uh, biological theory that it, it looks to be a golden age of theory in uh, the biological sciences is that a mirage because you highlight so much, so many efforts. It would be so. So here's again the real world. Uh, you know, it, it, it's a beautiful picture. I think there's lots of good theory to be produced in neuroscience and life sciences at the moment. The problem is that um, uh, so I, I think a lot of what again the the scientific system is set up that you have to sort of shout to the world, "Here I am! Here I am! It's me! It's me! It's me!" All the time, and so people produce a theory that is self-serving at the moment. It's not targeted at a deeper understanding of a phenomenon, but just at the self-promotion. And I think uh, our, our fields are flooded with this type of theory, which gives theory, again, a bad name. So we have uh, this uh, sort of self-serving, uh, I would call it shallow theory, a uh, technical term used by uh, philosopher Harry Frankfurt is bullshit. Um, that is increasingly prevalent for the reason that you have to produce it to be seen and heard at mm -hmm. the moment. And I think that's a real problem. So we're, we're sort of flooded by this. And this will certainly be counterproductive. Um, I'm, I'm gearing up to write a paper about the pernicious role of shallow theory, uh, which is for two reasons. First of all, it floods everything with bad theory, so that theory gets a bad reputation. But the other thing is it um, creates an illusion of understanding where there is none. And I have to say that uh, some aspects of, of the discussions about consciousness are of that type, but also theory in, in evolutionary biology and, and um, are completely missing the target. And again, I, as I said before, if you have concepts, you have to analyze them and see what kind of work they do. And often we introduce new concepts and, and so-called frameworks that do no work at the moment. And so I think that's a real problem because it makes it really hard for people to, to recognize the important questions. Um, again, Wimsat has beautiful um, uh, arguments about this, how we really don't realize often that we're talking past each other and, and are just shouting um, past each other. Uh, and, and he talks about these pseudo debates that, that happen, especially in that uh, thicket, causal thicket, and where, where it's really hard to, to see <laughs> the forest for the trees. You know, that's, that's mm -hmm. the nature of the game. It's, it's hard to do biology. It's hard to do neuroscience. It's definitely hard to do social sciences. Well, it's hard to keep a, keep a career as well. And, and that's yeah. a motivator, I think. Right, so we we cut we we cut through uh you know we we just raise the thicket <laughs> completely <laughs> we burn it down, and that's not a good way to go about it. Well, speaking of theory, you were about to start talking about something I definitely wanted to talk about because one of the things that your course uh, has done, and you know my other reading as well. I don't want to give you all the credit, of course, but uh, is the idea that synthesis is not the goal. So, you know, growing up scientifically, synthesis is always the goal. You need to synthesize, uh, and that's how you understand, that's how you explain things. But one of the things that a perspectival ap 
approach leaves room for is is that synthesis is not necessarily the end all goal. And in in the course, you talk about the modern synthesis and the extended uh, evolutionary synthesis and these attempts uh, to quote unquote synthesize and uh, and come up with a grand unified theory of evolution. And there are a lot of people talking about grand unified theories in neuroscience and the brain, et cetera. And there's a lot of plenty of pushback uh, too. And I, you know, you would be among those pushing back on the idea of needing a grand unified theory in this causal thicket. So uh, I just wanted to cue you and ask you, why is synthesis so bad, Yogi? <laughs> so here you have this process, evolution, that creates its its only function, I would say, it's a dangerous word, is to, to create diversity. And we have some unifying principles like natural selection, although we know even population geneticists know very well that a lot of evolutionary processes don't involve natural selection. But you have this sort of principle. But think about the, the complementary aspect of evolution, the, the processes that create new um, phenotypes, sometimes entirely new um, levels of organization in these what, what are called major transitions of evolution, eukaryotic cells, and, and of course, the evolution of consciousness in the end, we always end up there, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, can be seen as something like that, a, a new level of organization, a new degree of freedom, as we said before, I think that makes a lot of sense. So um, you wonder how, how can you have a general account of those processes that create uh, what is actually being selected? And I don't think you can because they are of this, of this nature that is constantly reinventing, remaking itself. So they, whenever you have, you think you have the final theory, it'll surprise you again. So for that reason, it's bizarre. So the, the, the modern synthesis, it has been argued very convincingly. By different uh, people, my friend and colleague Arlen Stolzfus, among others, and, and Ron Amundsen, philosopher of science, that the, the, the synthesis was really more of a restriction. It was a, a form of scientific gatekeeping, which was very important at the time mm. to define a field that was new at the time. And it, it excluded more that it, it synthesized, um, to be honest, because all these aspects, these constructive aspects were, were excluded. And, uh, the, the, this movement, the extended synthesis is, is rightly claiming. So they're, they're going in the right direction there. They're, they're claiming back these, these sort of neglected aspects of, of these constructive aspects of evolution, um, as evolutionary biology. The, the mistake is, or, you know, where there's just not, it, it's just a slogan really is the synthesis part, because there is no synthesis. The, the striking thing about this extended synthesis is it's just a bunch of disconnected um, uh, phenomena that, you know, niche construction, uh, phenotypic plasticity are thrown together. You see these diagrams and slides where, where these concepts are somehow, you know, uh, put in circles around each other, but that makes no sense. It's it's just a bunch of things, right, that, that are partially already part of traditional evolutionary theory, if you go back to Darwin, niche construction was in, in Darwin's books. He knew that earthworms make earth. Uh, that is their habitat. He has an illustration on that in a, in a book. And so it's it's like, and then it's sort of vague, right? I mean, sort of it's, it's throwing around um, concepts. Uh, but if you do theory, the theory needs to, to, to do work, you know? So I'm not saying there are lots of excellent people in this movement that do excellent empirical and theoretical work on their specific problems that they're working on. I'm saying the framework and this general idea of that there is a well-definable um, modern synthesis that needs to be extended 
is, um, well, can I call it bullshit? And I think it's mm -hmm. just a tool, a political tool, a gatekeeping tool, uh, a tribal tool. And people are, are having, this is a fierce debate between, if you're between those camps, if you're neither on the anti-ES side or on the pro-ES side, you feel it. I can tell you, especially if you're a young, untenured researcher. And it's a pseudo debate that brings the field nowhere. And that's, I've been sitting uh, <laughs> in that crack between those <laughs> two for a while now. And it's it's not... Pleasant, but it's very important work to do to say, look, I mean, this is a, a, a you know, a soccer game where I want both teams to lose, you know? Uh, so it's, it's like, I don't think this is a productive debate because I don't think that the conceptual frameworks that are presented are anything else but, um, tools for politics, uh, academic politics, not theoretical tools for insight. And, um, I think we need to talk about this, but, um, it's very difficult because you immediately get shouted at. Um, and, and that's not a healthy sort of, um, way, you know, I'm, I'm a bit provocative in this, of course. And so I don't mind getting shouted at, but I, th I, I do think that we need a productive, uh, discussion where people try to understand the, the, the actual problems. And I think the underlying problem is exactly that the, the synthetic approach is completely wrong in a, in an area where you're looking at a thicket, a causal thicket, plus a thicket that is creating constant novelty um, mm -hmm. as the nature of the game. You, you just need a perspectival approach. And this has been recognized by a few people. Of course, I mean, again, Bill Wimsatt is the, the go-to for that. Um, and he actually did his PhD as a philosopher in the lab of uh, Richard Lewinton, a very good evolutionary biologist who's often named as one of the core modern synthesis proponents, who is, is one of the best thinkers about uh dialectics in, in evolution and is often uh, maligned because he was a, a Marxist. And so, you know, it's, a, it's like, it's not like his theory is communist. It's, it's actually, it's, it's ha it has dialectics in it, but that's it. And, and that's not, you know, I'm, I'm not a communist, but I like his work. And, uh, but people distance themselves often just because of that. And, and, and that's, I mean, these kind of ideologies that intrude at the moment are a sign of a high pressure environment with little funding and, and lots of infighting yeah. more than they are of a productive, uh, theoretical discussion. That's basically summing it up. And I think it's time to move beyond synthesis because, uh, historian of science, Betty Smokovitis has made a really convincing argument that, uh, this, Synthesis is, is a sort of a positivist remnant. It's a remnant of an old philosophy of science that saw everything as sort of the aim of science is producing large scale theories from which we deduce everything else. And that's just not going to work in modern biology because we're, we're dealing with a causal thicket, basically, that, and a, and a, and a, a novelty generating, um, process. But evolution, you know, and cultural evolution, economy, that's the same. So these fields need a completely different perspectival approach because we're dealing with truly complex systems. Then in the last uh, few moments here, I just want to ask you, zoom out and ask you some kind of career uh, questions if, if you'll uh, indulge me. Um, Absolutely. One, I, I, you know, your path has been unique. Uh, as everyone, everyone says that their own trajectory is unique. But, you know, I look at yours and it, it truly is. If you had to go back, if you if you thought back, would you do anything differently? Um, would you tell yourself anything or try to convince your younger self to uh, do anything differently? Yes, I mean the one thing I wouldn't do is is sort of worry about things that are five years in the future because uh, anything that I worried about five years in the future never happened, and so this is I was always somewhere completely different than I had thought. 
in those five years. And so this is would be advice to young scientists. Um, the other thing is, is uh, if you go into science right now, um, I think I've managed to do this to a certain degree, but not enough is, is really do what you care about, what you're passionate about. And I've uh, often managed to do this. There were a few occasions where, um, I mean, there, there's sort of two things. One is I wouldn't work on certain topics anymore just because I think they, they these happened very early in my career where I, I, I just thought, okay, this is going to be good for my career and I wouldn't do that anymore. But um, I didn't do that. I, I pretty early on decided not to do that. The second thing is don't don't work for people who have uh, the wrong attitudes towards doing science and are uh, sort of bad uh, instructors, mentors, and 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 sometimes just sort of have a hidden agenda or something or, or playing games, academic games, um, and that's becoming more and more pervasive. Uh, this is this academic politics is a game that I've decided not to play, and this is also why I'm out of uh, an academic traditional academic career path. I don't even want to get back into that, even if I would mm. still get a job at an academic institution. It's my life's too short for that. What if you could be the head of a department, though? <laughs> It'd be even worse, no. wouldn't it? <laughs> yes, no, 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 no. I mean, I've been the head of an institute, and uh, yeah. as, as beautiful as that work was, and it, it was very good, it was also for a limited amount of time, fortunately, I have to say. I, it wouldn't have been good for me long. I'm not, I, I, I am an explorer. I want to do academic research. And I've, I've read this in the Times Higher Education Supplement. There was this article that was entitled, If You Like Research, Academia May Not Be For You. <laughs> because it, 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 it was a survey of Dutch scientists and they said on average, they spend 11% of their time on research. And, uh, so the, 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 the article basically said, if you do theoretical research, why not get a 50% job somewhere? So I'm trying to get a business model to work where I teach courses. I do retreats about the academic system for young scientists. And I am trying to start, uh, something called meta modern mentoring for people about, you know, the sort of dimension of learning that we often neglect today, which is personal growth in various directions, um, that is n never assessed in those metrics that we have. It's just factual knowledge and your usefulness to fit in an economic system that is not right. So it's, it's sort of, uh, I'm, I'm trying to earn money with that sort of activity on a freelance basis and then use the rest of the time for research instead of, uh, going through that, um, head of department. Wow. I mean, head of department job has always, I've, I've worked under so many head of departments and it's been a nightmare. If I saw my future in that, it was like, Oh my God, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> No, thank you. <laughs> yeah, hopefully the heads of departments aren't listening right now. Um, I mean, I, 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 I admire them and I pity them. And yes, a lot yeah. of them do a really important and good job, but right. I'm not cut out to do this. That's not a judgment. I'm not saying they're all bad or whatever. It's just, no, I don't want to do that. Don't worry. I'll, I'll edit out the admiration comment. So, uh, <laughs> my last question. So, <laughs> one, of the, one of the reasons that I got out of academia is because one of the reasons is that I, I felt like I was becoming more and more specialized and my skills were becoming deeper, of course. Uh, and I was learning a lot more in that respect, but I was, you know, losing the uh, forest for the trees, for instance. There yeah. was important work that was just adjacent to what I was doing that I wasn't even really aware of or didn't even appreciate because I was so uh, focused on what I was doing. And it seems like your um, path has been of the opposite direction where you either have fought to maintain a broad picture and think about what's important or spent extra time doing that, 
or somehow magically, uh, because I know you've done you, you've done a lot of hard, deep work uh, modeling uh, these systems that we've talked a little bit about today. Um, but has that been? Uh, um, can you paint that picture for me? Has that been a struggle? Because it's it's kind of going against the uh, grain, you know. Yeah, so I've, I've, <laughs> I arrived at this point after 20 years of studying these genes in, in Drosophila and other flies called the gap genes. So I, I never, I never want to hear, or, you know, do anything with <laughs> this anymore. But your, but your, uh, but your favorite organism is Dr- Drosophila melanogaster, right? Yeah, and different flies. They were really, I mean, this was yeah. a very rewarding work. So I just decided, I knew my strength was in theory very early on in my career, but I decided to, to learn mm-hmm. the empirical work in the lab and then became became a, a group leader exactly for the reason that I wanted to have an empirical contribution and not just sit around and have theories uh, about other people's work. And and I think uh, that that's been paying off really well, always with the, the thought in the background that, that from, so I, I was privileged to do this, this crazy master's under Brian Goodwin, uh, a master's degree in holistic science. And, uh-huh. uh, it was uh, amazingly uh, path changing for me and, and life changing because uh, it focused me. I, I mean, I was busy. I went to Brian because I had read his book, How the Leopard Changed Its Spots at the time as a student, uh, and also Stuart Kaufman's books as, at those time, uh, at that time. They were tremendously influential and a bunch of other people who worked in the complexity sciences were pair back and, 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 you know, these kind of people. But, um, I, I, I really wanted to keep that in mind. And, and then I got that priming there during that one year master's course, uh, of really thinking about, uh, mm-hmm. phenomenology, master, uh, process thinking and all that, that really started. And I, I think I never, I never, uh, lost it. I, I did keep it. And through also a very, uh, decade long collaboration with my friend, uh, Nick Monk, who's a biomathematician and, and process thinker. And, and we, we always kept on doing that and published these papers in relatively obscure journals. But when people ask me, what are the most important papers that you've written? I often put those papers first because hmm. they were intellectually the most, uh, sort of the guiding, you know, we, we did some really nice empirical stuff and the people who were involved in doing that work. I, I cannot tell you how great they were and how, how rewarding it was to work with such people. Um, but in the end, the big picture stuff uh, is, is always what I wanted to focus on. It's uh, very difficult to do that. Um, so you have to do evening work um, during your normal scientific career. You have to compromise to, to survive if you want to survive. Or then you have to decide that, that you uh, will, will do research outside the traditional academic system, mm. which is something that will become increasingly. We have to find ways to do that still, but it will become increasingly the way to go for, for conceptual innovation because the academic system, I'm sorry, is not cutting it anymore. <laughs> it's quite a place to end it. All right, Yogi. So uh, I, I was excited. I've been excited to have this conversation with you for a long time because I, I love the course. And I'm so glad that you uh, agreed to come on and talk with me. It's been a real joy. So uh, I'm, I'm really glad to introduce you to my podcast uh, audience out there. Thank you. It's been absolutely fantastic to talk to you. Thank you. Brain Inspired is a production of me and you. I don't do advertisements. You can support the show through Patreon for a trifling amount and get access to the full versions of all the episodes, plus bonus episodes that focus more on the cultural side but still have science. 
go to braininspired.co and find the red Patreon button there. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. The music you hear is by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you for your support. See you next time. The stare